I'm Marty Moscowain. Welcome to The Connection. Eight years ago, in 2015, a white supremacist, Dylan Roof, was welcomed into a Bible study class at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. He sat with the parishioners and then suddenly opened fire, killing nine of them, including the pastor. It was a horrifying and vicious attack that was unforgivable in most people's minds. I certainly felt that way. And yet a few days later, several family members of the victims addressed Roof at his indictment. They spoke tearfully of their pain and they offered their forgiveness. Our guest, philosopher Maisha Cherry, said she was overcome with grief, sadness, anger, and worry. She writes in her new book, Failures of Forgiveness, that she was troubled by the fact that forgiveness was being depicted as something magical. Enchanted words that once spoken and performed could immediately heal wounds and racism. She says our notions of forgiveness are just too narrow and calls for a radical, more transformative kind of forgiveness that involves repair. Maisha Cherry is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of California at Riverside. She also directs the Emotion and Society Lab and joins us on The Connection. Maisha Cherry, nice to have you with us on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. We're very happy to have you with us. Let me begin with why you wanted to take on forgiveness. And I ask that because I do think forgiveness, we think of as this kind of sacrosanct act of generosity and kindness, this hallmark of empathy and altruism. But you're really asking us to really revisit this act and, and perhaps do it better. Yeah, I think I think when it comes to forgiveness, even when I talk about forgiveness and particularly being a philosopher, it's not an abstract philosophical topic. I think everyone can kind of relate. They can admit that they have either forgiven or been a recipient of forgiveness. But I was noticing during these high profile cases of, of violence that forgiveness was being viewed as something that could solve all of our problems. Hmm. And there was something about it being uttered. Uh, something about it that I thought uh, kind of was similarities in the sense that we was looking at it quite narrowly. So we were tending to think of it as all you have to do is let go of your anger and forgiveness always involves some form of kind of reconciliation. And I just thought that that was a kind of narrow way of looking at forgiveness that I thought that we need to broaden the ways in which we think about forgiveness. We need to broaden the ways in which uh, we take uh, who's involved in the forgiveness practice. And so one of the things that I suggest is that, hey, forgiveness is not just about victims, Hmm. but it's about wrongdoers. It's about the community. And I think once we broaden the way uh, we think about forgiveness and who's involved in forgiveness, I think a lot of problems that arise in the aftermath of wrongdoing, we can undo and prevent. I was watching um, some of the the people from the AME uh, Methodist uh, Church in Charleston, South Carolina, talking to Dylan Roof. It was obviously very painful to hear their words and the way they said them. Uh, Nadine Collier, whose mother, Ethel Lance, was, was murdered, said to him, you took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never hold her again, but I forgive you. God have mercy on your soul. And it's hard not to be so moved by those words and to wonder where in her heart was she able to find them? Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know and, either. And, and I- yeah, and, and I want to I want to recognize that when you forgive under those circumstances, I mean, I, I consider forgiveness to be a gift to us, so it's not an obligation. Mm-hmm. And as you, you said at the start of our conversation, um, for lots of people, that crime was was unforgivable. And so the fact that some family members, and I think it's important here, because the narrative, a lot of people thought that all of the family members forgave, and it was just a, a few of them that did, that did um, pronounce their forgiveness. But when I think about that, I think that that was a virtuous act. 
Um, I think that um, it was done on behalf of the memory of her loved one. It was done on behalf of healing for herself. And I want to, I want to praise that, sure. but I think it's also important for us to also think about those who didn't forgive and perhaps their actions were also praiseworthy too. Well, and, and one more quote from um, a, a family member that talked to Dylan Roof saying, uh, about their sister. Uh, she taught me that we are the family that love built. We have no room for hate, so we have to forgive. And it's interesting to this sort of combination of, of hatred and forgiveness. How do you, do you see them as kind of flip sides? Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that I, I conceive of, of forgiveness to be is that, hey, you can let go of anger, but you can also let go of, of hatred towards the wrong door. Right. Um, so it's not just the, the anger part. You can let go of hatred. You can let go of contempt. Uh, you can refuse to engage in, in any kind of in any kind of revenge. And so when I when you when you listen to the reports, which I think is important, when you listen to their testimonies, what they're trying to challenge us to, to, to conceive of forgiveness quite differently um, like there's even a quote where she says, you know, I have to learn how to do this. Right, <laughs> it's not right. going to come easy. So there's a lot of lessons about forgiveness that is found in their testimonies. But it seems as if what we were, the headlines were just talking about their forgiveness, about them forgiving the unforgivable. And it's about that, that feel good narrative that I found a problem, a problem with. Um, but I thought that what they were doing is something that I honestly, I don't think that I could have done. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could have removed my hatred towards someone who took my family member away. But they, they definitely did. And they did it for a variety of reparative reasons. And I think that's admirable. Which I do want to talk about. And just a little side note here, Dylan Roof, as I understand it, has never asked for forgiveness. He's never apologized. He's an unrepentant white supremacist. Is he owed an apology? You know, I, I would I would wish that, that that apology was uttered, and and this is the thing that makes that makes their forgiveness um, so praiseworthy in, in in so many ways. And, and in some ways, I'm sympathetic to reporters who couldn't help but put it in the headline, because for a lot of us, not only do we look at his crime as unforgivable, but the fact that he never offered an apology, he never apologized to them, and I think this shows truly the kind of the gift of their forgiveness. Um, and it also goes to show a lot of people think that when you forgive. Um, that it's always something that you offer up to the wrongdoer. And I think for, for lots of them, as much as they show empathy towards Dylan Roof, they were doing it for their own reasons for themselves, right? right? They were doing it for the memory of their loved ones. They were doing it so they can have have a better a, a better future. And it doesn't, this is kind of an important thing to remember. And I think one of the things that they show is that you can engage in, in forgiveness as a way to kind of transform your life, that a, a wrongdoer may have acted within their power to take something from you. But you can you can have a kind of power and which you take your life back and it doesn't depend on the wrongdoer doing anything such as offering an apology. And there's something about that that I find to be quite powerful. So is forgiveness for the forgiven or for the forgiver or does it vary from from incident to incident? I think I think it varies. I think it varies from incident to, in, to incident. Um, I think I think I can forgive someone and the forgiveness works for both of us. And uh-huh. so in some ways that me forgiving a wrongdoer, it does offer up some relief for them. And I and, and I seeing how overburdened they are about what they what they've done, that my forgiveness can offer some kind of hope. But in a lot of ways, I don't have to really be concerned about the wrongdoer at all. Right. I can forgive for my own reasons so that I can have some kind of repair for my for my own life. Um, so I think it can go it can go either ways to forgive the forgiveness can be for the wrongdoer. Um, but the forgiver can also be about the victim and the memory of the victim and the family, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you want us to enlarge this view of forgiveness. And, and I think the impulse is to kind of forgive and forget and move on and pretend it didn't happen or just kind of paper things over. But you're saying that is not enough. 
No, no, no. There, there's an adage that says that we ought to forgive and forget. Right. <laughs> I think that latter part is problematic. I mean, I, hey, listen, I think I think wrongdoing has an afterlife. And as much as we would like to forget everything that has happened horribly in our lives, there's a power in memory. And one of the things that I think memory serves is that it reminds us um, that that the aftermath of wrongdoing doesn't go away, go away, right? There's some consequences, there's some residue, uh, there's some mess that wrongdoing leaves. And I think one of the challenges that we have to learn is to kind of live with 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 the mess. There's a lot of regret, there's a lot of remorse, there's a lot of things that can't be undone, and we need to figure out how to wrestle wrestle with that. And I think the memory of it is is to make sure that we don't re- repeat wrongdoing that we recognize that what we do can't magically disappear, that we can hurt people and that that hurt can last for, for a lifetime. And so I think the memory of that um, can not only show respect to the gravity of the wrongdoing, but it can also serve as a reminder to not repeat the past. And so I don't think that we should forget anything. I think remembering and memory is a, is a wonderful thing if we are to heal. Well, you tell a story, a very personal story. Your your mother was actually dying and your stepbrother, excuse me, stepfather brought another woman into the home to live with him and ask for forgiveness, which you refuse to give him. <laughs> uh, you go on to say that, that you sort of have, have kind of reframed this whole thing to make it work for yourself. But nonetheless, um, what was your thought when he said, uh, I, I, I want your forgiveness? Well, at the at the time, so this was about about ten years ago. At, right. at the time, I just felt like in that moment, it was right before my my mother's funeral. I felt like the the, the request was perhaps inappropriate at the time. I think I think for a lot of our family members, we was we was grieving our our mother. Um, so the focus was really on our mother, and and I felt in that moment the focus was not on me relieving this person of any regret, or remorse, um, or any emotions. I I wanted to focus on celebrating the life of, of of my mother. And so in the book, there's no doubt that I do talk about how we need to be careful about when we make requests of forgiveness. Um, but that aside, I mean, I thought at that moment, I, I I thought at that moment I did not forgive him. I didn't have the time to forgive him. I was focused on on other things. But as as time has passed, me and my sister, we have dealt with that wrongdoing quite differently. And so I think she forgave way before I did. And there was a, a recent situation in which he, he reached out to the family. And of course, my sister has forgave. And, and so when she reached out to me asking, you know, if he could contact me, I said no. And her immediate response was, Maisha, why won't you why won't hmm. you just forgive him? And I thought for a moment, I have forgiven him. I didn't forgive him in that moment, but over the years I have forgiven him and my forgiveness just looked quite differently from, from my sister. So for my sister, Hey, it's about, you know, letting go of anger. It's about no longer being angry with him. It's about reestablishing a relationship with him. And I felt that that was, that was narrow. I think that that was the problem about how people was conceiving of forgiveness. And for me, my forgiveness, you know, I didn't have hatred towards him. So I let go of the hatred that I had, um, but I didn't want to reconcile. I had other reparative, reparative aims. I wanted to, I wanted to forgive him for myself, and 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 for the memory of 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 my of of my mother. And so I kind of was beginning to understand that this narrow view was causing some problems in my family. It was causing a misunderstanding between uh, between my sister, and I was just trying to to see how this can't just be limited to my own family situation. I think lots of families were also suffering, or also suffering from people conceiving of forgiveness quite narrowly. And thinking that if you just grant them forgiveness, everything, everything will work out. So so forgiveness is a, is a personal problem for me as well as a social problem. For sure. Me. No, I, 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 I get it completely. I mean, you do go on to write to say that, yes, you, do, you don't wish him ill. You don't want anything terrible to happen to him. And they, perhaps you understand what he did as as a form of weakness. And and perhaps that made it a little more benign. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's not to minimize the wrongdoing. Um, but I think I think one of the things that's important is is trying to empathize with right. someone who engages in in a kind of wrongdoing. Um, I think as much as I can't imagine myself forgiving Dylan Roof, um, I honestly can't imagine what I would do in a situation like my father's. Right. I, I can't imagine what it is to have someone uh, on their deathbed <laughs> um, and you being an emotional ruin and, and what that what that is for you. And so the only thing that I can do is, is, is try to empathize and try to offer some kind of compassion as much as I didn't like the action. Sure. Um, I, I just felt that everyone is redeemable to a certain extent. And I think everyone can be understood without excusing their particular actions. And I think that empathy goes goes a long way. Well, I'll tell you what, let's take a very short break and then we'll get back to our conversation. Maisha Cherry is our guest today on The Connection. And we're talking about her new book. It's called Failures of Forgiveness. And it's subtitled What We Get Wrong and How to Do It better. She is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of California at Riverside. She also directs the Emotion and Society Lab. We've got much more to talk about after this very short break, so don't go anywhere. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen talking with Maisha Cherry about forgiveness, which, of course, is a very powerful act. It's not easy to do. And our guest says it often does not go far enough. And again, she's got a new book called Failures of Forgiveness. You know, that story you told about your stepfather, I, I, I know someone who forgave his father after his father had died. And he had learned more about what his life was about, things that actually were quite horrifying and explained some of the things that his father had done with him that explained their relationship and was able to forgive him even though he was not there, is not there, and now has a such a better relationship with his father because mm-hmm. of that. Does that make sense to you? That does make sense. I mean, I, I think I think one of the important things is that I think that example kind of illuminates that forgiveness can look differently for different people, right? So for a lot of people, like I said before, you know, this narrow view that 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 forgiveness always aims for reconciliation. But if your loved one is deceased, it's impossible to sure. kind of reconcile in that particular way. Um, so there's another aim. And I think I think for the individual that goes to show that forgiveness doesn't just aim for reconciliation, it can aim for for, for repair, can aim for release. And I just I just think that it really illuminates that that forgiveness is much more than we than we think it is how about forgiving ourselves you have a whole section on this and (laughs) you know um and to be honest I have to fully confess here I you know for time during high school I was a mean girl and I have I'm Mm. embarrassed I'm ashamed of myself for Mm. having done some of the things that I did it wasn't long lived and and hopefully I've lived a better life but nonetheless um there are things that um I did that were hurtful and I truly regret them but I haven't repaired them as far as I know yeah, that's tough. I uh, I must say that forgiving my stepfather has been much easier than 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 forgiving my, my myself. There's really? moments, really, yeah, that there, yeah, that there's moments in which I mean, if we go back to my my mother's example, you know, there's moments. You know, my mother died when I was in my 
my late 20s. And for those who have been in their 20s, you know, that's the selfish years, right? You're really caught up in, in kind of creating a life for yourself and a career for yourself. And so you don't go home as much. I didn't go as home as much as I, as I wish that I had. And so when, when my mother passed away, all I could think about was the times in which she asked me, hey, when are you coming home this weekend? Uh -huh. And so I have regrets. I have remorse about, quote unquote, not being the best daughter that I can be. And I'm, and I'm filled with with lots of remorse. And there's moments in which, you know, I can go be going about my day. And I, I remember these moments in which I wasn't the best daughter. And that's very painful. I call them intrusive memories, right? They're, they're very, very painful. It's so hard forgiving yourself because I think you hold yourself up to a particular standard. And dis there's nothing like disappointing yourself, right? Um, because you know what you can do. And so it's easy to have compassion for other people, but less to have for yourself. But I think just because it's more difficult doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be, it can't be done. And I think one of the challenges that we have to do is just try to learn from, <laughs> from the mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, try, trying do to better. be better. I'm trying to be a better sister. <laughs> um, but that, that's all we have to try to, to try to try to do much better in the future. I mean, it is hard because we have to live, <laughs> we have to live with ourselves, right? Right. <laughs> we can't, right. Right. yeah, we can't blame anyone else. Um, and, and I wonder whether you think that how serious a problem you think that is that that we that we beat ourselves up for things that we have done in the past or maybe that is appropriate yeah i think i think beat yourself up is good it's 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 how long <laughs> you're going to beat yourself up with that can be the problem right so if you if you wallow in too much self reproach then you're never going to give yourself an opportunity to do better right and i think i think beating up yourself in disproportionate ways is 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 the thing that keeps us stuck and so I think the challenge is, okay, how do I, how do I challenge myself? How do I, you know, deal with this, this regret that I had in ways that's healthy, <laughs> in ways that give me motivation to continue to do better, to do better in, in, the, in, the, in the future. So I think there needs to be a balance there. Well, let me ask you a practical question then. How does one ask for forgiveness or can one ask for forgiveness? Yeah, so I think you can. I think it really depends on the context here. So, you, so if you want to get practical, we got to add all these, sure. all these elements in it, right? So it could be the case um, that you are making an apology to someone. And let's say it's been years since the wrongdoing has been done. And you just want to let this person know, hey, I, I don't minimize what I've done. Um, I want to acknowledge that, you know, that what I did was messed up and, and acknowledge the hurt that has happened. And I just want to let you know that I'm that I'm that I'm sorry. Um, and it could be um, that you offer up, you know, a kind of desire for forgiveness. So mm -hmm. and I think the desire is important here because I think you can say, hey, I messed up and I hope that you can forgive me someday. I think that's that's quite appropriate. I have a problem with asking for it in that particular moment, mm -hmm. because I think that an apology is a gift. And so when you come to someone with an apology or with a gift, um, asking for forgiveness is like asking for a gift. So that's kind of <laughs> odd to me that you're going to bring a gift, but then act for a gift back. And so I think that's probably inappropriate, but I also think there's a variety of other ways in which you can probably, you know, ch check in and see if someone has actually forgiven you. So say for instance, we have a friendship and, um, uh, I've, I messed up and we haven't talked in a while. And then you decide to call me and ask me if I want to go out and I may want to Take that as a sign that you have forgiven me. And to be clear or to be sure, I may ask, so have you forgiven me? I think that's 
you know, that's, that's appropriate. But I, I, I think that, you know, you can ask in a way that, that can put pressure on people. I think those press conferences in which reporters were asking victims if they can find it in their heart to forgive after police violence, I think that that was kind of inappropriate to publicly put people on the spot, uh, to ask too quickly. Um, so there's problems with, with requests, there's, pro- there's problems with apologies. And I think that's what I'm, I want people to realize, that although these are great moral tools, um, that we need to be very careful when we ask for it, how we ask for it, and what environment we ask for. So to be very, 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 very careful that and asking we don't put pressure and, and create more harm. Well, and just picking up on that, um, and I, I think we've all seen those interviews where a, a member of the media has asked someone about forgiveness, wanting what, a, a kind of a happy end to the story, a, a positive <laughs> narrative to be able to share with, with listeners or viewers? I think so. And I'm sympathetic. I'm sympathetic to that. Sure. Right. Um, these are these are tense moments that there, it's a lot of racial tension in which all of us are kind of implicated in a way. And you want to as a citizen and as a reporter, you want to do what you can do to kind of um, let's just say give us a future or, or hope. Um, but I still think no matter what the intent, you still could be doing more harm in the world. And so asking those victims these what's in their heart when we don't even know their last name or we don't have a relationship with them, asking them publicly, putting them on the spot and treating the forgiveness question as if once I print this or once this person asks, answer my question in the affirmative, everything is going to be okay. Right. And I think that's not that's not the case. Right. In, in order to really go about the work of repair. It's going to take more than a victim saying, I forgive this white supremacist, right? It's going to take for, uh, take for us to kind of try to get certain kind of policies in place. Um, it's going to take for us to do our part in our individual lives, to put it into racism and, and to, 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 to be people of peace. Um, so I, I just think that we need to be very, very careful. I think happy endings are great. It's something that we should strive for. But life is not always about happy endings. These are messy. And to restore things, you know, requires much more work and much more effort than the, than the happy than the happy stuff. And to live with that. It's okay for things not to be happy at each turn. Um, that's that's perfectly fine. And we need to be comfortable with the discomfort so that we can truly repair. Indeed. And you have actually a really interesting section about instead of questions about forgiveness. Do you forgive someone when someone is in sort of the heat of their of their suffering and misery? You say, why not ask, what do you want to tell us? What <laughs> right. can we do for you? What do you want to happen? That those are actually perhaps more humane kinds of questions to ask someone who has, you know, just experienced the worst thing in their life. Right. I mean, we're so... And, I, I'm, and as much as I'm saying something about the reporters, I think the reporters really represent each of us as individuals. Sure. We do want to read, you know, certain kind of happy endings and we want to tell these kind of positive, positive narratives. But I think in doing so, it's like we're telling a story. And I think we need to put focus on victims and allow victims to tell their own stories. Um, and I think so much has been taken from them and wrongdoing. So I think giving them agency back to speak for themselves is, is very important, despite kind of our, our optimism or what can be toxic optimism. So I think there's better questions to ask victims um, that won't put them on the spot, that won't pressure them, but can allow them to tell their story. So what do you want to tell us? What do you want to tell us about your loved one? Right. Well, particularly in cases of state violence, we know that the loved one is perhaps no longer around. 
Um, you know, there's only one side to the story that's being told because of the deceased loved one. Um, we know that sometimes the media has a tendency to 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 all, always talk about the bad that they've uncovered about the, the wrongdoer. Um, and so I think when you ask victims, what do you want to tell us? It's given the narrative back. It's given the power back to, to, the, to the victim. I think that's a powerful thing. And I think asking them what they want to happen or what they want to happen going forward, I think it's also also very, very power, powerful because it allows us to kind of be attentive, to listen to their needs and their concerns. And I think when we do that to victims, then we're able to really get to the work of repair that we're after and those inappropriate questions. You're really talking about and underscoring this sort of pressure to forgive someone. And perhaps that comes from people's faith or Christianity or various forms of religion that talk about the power of forgiveness, but you're really pushing back on that. Yeah. Forgiveness can be powerful. Sure. But also, but not like onto justice can be just as powerful, right? Us focusing how we can restore our world is also powerful. And I think, I think, I think when you, when people say forgiveness is powerful, what they're, what I hear them saying is what the victim does is powerful. And and one of the things I'm trying to remind people of, if we are to create a better world, it's not going to take just victims doing stuff with their emotions. It's going to take all of us playing an active world to uh, act a role in creating a better, better world. And so I think the forgiveness question just put too much pressure. Um, and here's the thing. A victim can't do it all. It's just impossible. Yeah. And it goes into this magical thinking about what one individual can do or what forgiveness can do. And I'm just trying to remind people that the work of repair doesn't it's, it doesn't stop even when the victim says, I forgive you, nor nor is it impaired when a victim says, I don't forgive. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done if if we are to repair our world and forgiveness to stop at forgiveness i think is 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 just not a good it's not a good look let me just quickly reintroduce you that's uh, maisha cherry she's a philosopher she's also an author and her new book is titled failures of forgiveness uh what we get wrong and how to do it better are there times though when it really is appropriate to to withhold forgiveness because it's it doesn't meet the moment so to speak I think so. Um, if you go back to the moment when which I was talking about my stepfather, yeah. it was just an inappropriate moment for me to do that. I mean, I didn't have my, my emotional resources were really focused on my mother's funeral. <laughs> um, and so in some ways for me to focus, to use those emotions to focus on anything else, I think would have been disrespectful to, to, to the moment, to the, the, the moment of the memory of my, of my mother. But I think if we go back to the social context that we've been talking about, or, or even the personal. I think sometimes um, I think we should withhold forgiveness because the wrongdoer just hasn't acknowledged their wrongdoing. And if we care about the wrongdoer to a certain extent, maybe we want to wait a little bit. Right. If we really want the wrongdoer to kind of confess up to be better, sometimes withholding it is, is for their is, is for their benefit. But I also think that withholding can be a, a radical act. <laughs> it can be a revolutionary act. Um, it can be an act that pressure pressure us all to, to kind of do our part. And so if I realize that people are just talking about forgiveness as if forgiveness can do all the things when what we need to do is to change policies, then I can withhold as a way to resist that kind of narrative, to kind of challenge the community to do their, their particular part. Um, so I, I find it very powerful to withhold forgiveness. I mean, also... For, for matters of safety, <laughs> for matters of concern, I think it can be a wise thing to withhold withhold forgiveness in order to protect oneself and one's family. Um, so I think just as 
forgiving people can be radical and 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 inspirational. I think withholding forgiveness can just be mm. as radical and inspirational. You, you've talked a lot about repair, and you, you talk about superficial repair, which obviously doesn't really af- address or fix the problem, and radical repair, which really gets in, identifies the problem, and figures out what to do with it. How possible is that? I think it's possible. I think it's a lot of work. And so to me, superficial repair is you do enough work for it to look good on the outside, right? So you ask the forgiveness question um, in a news news conference so that you can, you know, have a wonderful article that's optimistic and positive, right? But you don't know, haven't really addressed the root of the problem, right? State violence is still happening. But, you know, uh, white supremacist violence is still is still happening. Radical repair is quite different. Right. When you aim for radical repair, whether that's with forgiveness or without forgiveness, you're really trying to address the root of the problem. Right. Um, So as opposed to thinking forgiveness can do it all, you're trying to figure out how can we root out white supremacy and young people? Right. How can we really root out uh, police profiling? How can we really root out the wrongdoing that's happening in our family that keep repeating itself? Right. And getting at the root of that. I mean, that's a lot of work. It is. Right? It it's is. not going to be. It, yeah, you can't post it, the family picture on, uh, on instant, uh, social media right. real quick. Right. After you had the conversation. But I think the work is worth it in the end. And, and I think I think, you know, we live in a society in which things you know, people want to, you know, heal their lives and change their lives in 30 days or less and radical repair to really get at the root and fix some problems. It's going to take much more time than that. Um, but it's but it's worth it. Well, it's worth it. And and you write about South Africa's uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, both the pros and the cons. But here was a country trying to address the horrors of apartheid. Um, how how well do you think they did in, in sort of repairing <laughs> this part of, of their history and their country? Yeah, I, I think they were aiming for radical repair. So they weren't just aiming for the superficial stuff. And you know this um, because mo- most of the people have a memory of uh, survivors' families, you know, kind of crying and, and, and basically offering their forgiveness. But what a lot of people don't realize is that, hey, there was a lot going on to offer usher in New South Africa. So it was these human rights violation hearings, but there was also a reparations committee right. Right, trying to get things back. There was an amnesty commission in which people were trying to um, trying to figure out how we should handle justice on behalf of the wrongdoer. But there was also a truth. So it wasn't just these, these people in these hearings testifying, but they were going back into the community trying to literally find out where the bodies were buried. And so, you know, they were getting that radical repair because they weren't just relying on forgiveness to do all the work to kind of restore South Africa. And I think there's a there's a lot that we can we can learn from that. However, we ought to be careful and thinking that, you know, forgiveness can 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 do it, can do it all Um, or that forgiveness. You know, all it takes is just uttering forgiveness in that particular moment. I think when you go back to the archive of South Africa, you know, a lot of people say, hey, you know, there's moments in which I was I was participating in the hearings and I did not forgive and people made me feel bad about that forgiveness. <laughs> so we want to make sure we don't repeat that kind of, kind of, kind of mistake, but also what we're realizing with South Africa. I mean, I've been there several times. Um, they're on the road to radical repair, um, but it's a process. There's still a lot of, in, you know, inequity and social inequality there. So it's a work in, in, in progress. So apartheid has ended, but there's still a lot of problems that they're contending with. And I think what we can learn from that is that healing and repair it doesn't happen in an instance and you know trying to move towards a better future doesn't happen sometimes in a decade 
that it's a road towards repair. And I think we need to remind ourselves of that fact. Well, and I wonder, you mentioned reparations. I'm thinking also the Catholic Church and, and the lawsuits as a way to kind of demand an apology, probably without forgiveness. But nonetheless, how do you see that? We have about a minute before our break here, but how do you see the role of, of money and reparations when it comes to forgiveness? Hey, sometimes <laughs> you have to bring evidence that things can be repaired right. um, and that you're full, fully willing to repair some things. And sometimes money can help with that. So if you've stolen land, um, if you've stolen people's history and you you want them to kind of preserve the, the history that they have left, that may require money to do just, do just that. Um, so money can help. Uh, money can't do all the work. Um, but I, I believe it can, can 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 help, and particularly in capitalistic nations in which capital and, and wealth is a huge thing, we ought not to ignore that sometimes if we are to repair things, we're going to have to repair things with some with some resources. Because for people to repair their world, it requires not just emotional resource, but also monetary resources as well. Well, let's take that short break, and then we'll get back to our conversation here on The Connection. And again, Maisha Cherry is our guest. She is a philosopher. She's written several books, and the newest one is called failures of forgiveness and it's uh, subtitled what we get wrong and how to do better and she's a professor of philosophy at the university of california at riverside and she also directs the emotion and society lab much more after this very short break do stay with us don't go away we'll be right back Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. We are talking about forgiveness. It's a powerful act. It's not easy to do. And our guest philosopher, Maisha Cherry, says it often doesn't go far enough. We're talking about uh, some of what she writes in her new book, Failures of Forgiveness, What We Get Wrong and How to Do It Better. And she calls for a more radical, transformative kind of forgiveness. Well, we talked about South Africa. We talked about the Catholic Church. Let's talk about the United States of America um, <laughs> and slavery. And you know how? First, how do you how do you see forgiveness and slavery and even apologies as we grapple with our our history and, and frankly the legacy of our history? Yeah. So we just talked about the South Africa case, and even alluded to the the Canadian case. And one of the things that we've learned from both of those both of those contexts is that they have engaged in what I call, call a political project of reconciliation. Um, there was reparations committees. There was truth hearings. Uh, there was, um, you know, reparations that were given to survivors. All that, all that stuff. But when I look at the United States context, and particularly, you know, kind of trying to figure out what we should do with slavery, we haven't even made it to the truth part. So first, first of all, it hasn't been a political project of reconciliation. We still have that to happen for for the United States, which is odd um especially after so many years right so many years uh come on united states um <laughs> so it's it's odd uh that we haven't engaged in a political project but but i i think it's not so odd about this you know i'm very much influenced by the work of james baldwin now there is something about america uh trying to deal with itself 
um, trying to be truthful about who it was, who it is, and who it should be. And just like any, you know, we know people who are in just in denial about their wrongdoing, who try to fix it up, who try to tell a particular particular kind of story about themselves. I know people like that who has never done wrong and who likes to look good in front of everybody. Um, but as long as you are that person, you would never get better. <laughs> and so I think if if we are to really repair our racial condition in the United States, it's going to have to be a political project of reconciliation in which, first of all, we are truthful about the past. Banning books is not a way to be truthful about the past. Stopping certain classes from being taught in our university is not a way to be truthful uh, uh, about the past. So even before we talk about the reparations part, I'm concerned about we can't even be truthful about the realities um, and the atrocities of, of, of slavery. So I think that's important first uh, before we even get to the reparations, the reparations questions. How do you see, you know, taking down statues of Robert E. Lee or building museums or, or monuments to African-Americans or to African-American leaders? I, is that sort of a, a half apology? Well, I, I, I think apologies need to be explicit, right? So you can you can undo a wrongdoing. And so when you allow certain kinds of, of white supremacists, no matter what role they have occupied, to be memorialized, you know, in front of state buildings, then a way to kind of repair that wrongdoing is to take them down. But that's not the same thing as an apology, right? And I want to I want to separate these things because reparative work, apologies, forgiveness, et cetera, et cetera, they all do d- different kinds of things. And one is never a replacement for the for the others. I think I think those efforts of bringing statues down, um, those are good efforts, but Hey, there's more to be done, mm. and we need to we need to we need to welcome ourselves and be up to the task of, of of doing of doing much more. How do you see the you sort of reference this, but how do you see then the role of race and and even gender and the role that it plays in forgiveness? If a if a white person does something or a black person does something, do we respond the same or do we respond differently? No, I I, I and that's one of the things that really captivated me about 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 our rhetoric of forgiveness that was being used publicly because I was noticing that these requests for forgiveness were being made when the victims were black Mm. and the offenders were white and they were being made, these requests were being made to primarily women. And I began to think about, Hey, it's appropriate, but also look at who's being asked and who's being asked on behalf of. And I think that just goes to show kind of the racial and the gender dynamics of this beautiful concept that we we've termed as as beautiful and I think for me, it, it just goes to show several things. For one, it goes to show that there are certain wrongdoers that are perceived as redeemable in our eyes, mm. right? Um, so white males, hey, of course we should forgive them because they're, they're redeemable. But however, we don't offer up or talk about forgiveness when the perpetrator is black. And we got to ask ourselves, why is that the case? Perhaps because we don't believe that black people are redeemable or worth redemption. And so we, we got to kind of think about that. Um, and the, but the challenge, I think, is not to, not, to, not to suggest that forgiveness is never relevant, but change the ways in which we have allowed it to be gendered and, and, and racialized because everybody is worthy of redemption. And so forgiveness should always be at least an, an option on the table, no matter who the wrong, wrongdoer, wrongdoer is. You write about something called the hurry and bury ritual. How does that work? So, you know, going back to these requests that I was talking about. Yeah, exactly. What is what is what was fascinating about these about these requests is that they were being made, and this is gonna kinda break down why I call it hurry and burial. 
they were being made like right after the shooting. In many cases, before the, the funeral. In many cases, before an indictment, right? And I was fascinated about why were people in a rush <laughs> to talk about forgiveness and to get these victims to forgive. So that's the hurry part. The berry part is, you know, forgiveness was being written about and talked about to the point that honestly, I forgot what people were forgiven for, hmm. right? And so, so in some ways, forgiveness uh, was obscuring or talk or rhetoric about forgiveness was obscuring the wrongdoing. So, and and it was being these questions were being you know asked like all the time in relationship to these high profile cases of police violence. So I called the hurry and bury ritual because I don't think that just reporters engage in this process. I think. When it comes to our family, we want to hurry up <laughs> and solve the problem. We don't want any conflict. So we immediately ask the victim to forgive. I mean, so what, what we need to be careful here, that just like I needed time to forgive my stepfather, right? We need to allow for victims time to deal with the hurt, to deal with the wrongdoing, um, and to, to rush them to do it is to minimize the wrongdoing, <laughs> is to take away their agency, and it's also to d disrespect them. And so I think the challenge for all of us is don't, don't engage in the hurry and bury ritual of any, in of any kind. Don't quickly ask people to forgive. Be patient, be empathetic. If they wanna forgive, they will surrender their forgiveness. They don't need for us to be, uh, to, to, to ask them all these questions during this, this, this awful time of their lives. Do you have an example of what you think true forgiveness either looks like or, or feels like or has what it has that makes it true and correct and, so he, and healing and healing. Yeah. So, so one of the things I'm trying to challenge people is that that's going to be subjective, right? So what I find to be true and correct is going to depend on who I am, what I am forgiving, um, what I, what I want from the, from the, from the, from the forgiveness. And I think the problem that happens is that what is true for us, we try to make true for other people. So for my sister, what was true forgiveness was letting go of anger so that he can be back in your life. Mm -hmm. But for me, true forgiveness was letting go of the hatred that I have towards him so that I can repair my particular world. And I think the challenge for all of us is that, hey, I, you know, we need to broaden the way in which we think about forgiveness. Forgiveness can look different in very different contexts and respect the truth and the trueness of someone's forgiveness, although we would like for it to look look differently. You wrote a book recently, I, I guess the book before this one called Anger is Not a Bad Word. So it's interesting to, to think about forgiveness and anger, and you write about sort of an outraged forgiveness, that there is a place for anger in forgiveness. Yeah, so there may be a time, you know, I must say that even when we talk about my stepfather, and you know, I feel feel a little heat <laughs> because yeah. I am still, still, still angry. So the anger, the anger is still there. I think the anger is still there because it just reminds me of the gravity of the situation. Um, it still breaks my heart um, as if it happened yesterday um, because I consider what he did to, to be ab abhorrent. Um, so I don't think the anger, anger is going to go away. I think anger is a fitting response to wrongdoing. It respects the value of the person who was, who was harmed. And so there's, 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 there's value there. And so one of the things that I like about what I'm doing is that I'm suggesting is that you don't have to let go of that anger in order, in order to forgive someone. And I think that's powerful because for a lot of people, they have felt that they haven't truly forgiven or they haven't truly moved on uh, because the anger reappears. Um, but I think it's 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 a sign of freedom. I think it's liberating to know that, yes, the anger may come and go. Mm -hmm. um, and and that just goes to show that you respect the wrongdoer and you respect your own self, uh, but you can still forgive in, in, in spite of it. 
How do you see cancel culture when it comes to this notion of of forgiveness and and perhaps wrongdoing? I think forgiveness and canceling is compatible. So I can Uh cancel or no longer desire to be in a relationship with a celebrity and still forgive them. <laughs> so I don't think you have a celebrity you're in a relationship with. <laughs> well, transactional, let me just say yeah, transactional relationship, right? Um, I'm a fan. They entertain me and, you know, I decide to give them attention if they decide to continue to entertain me. And if they decide to do something that's morally abhorrent, then I'm no longer a fan, but I can still forgive them. So as you can see, I think the two is, 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 is compatible. Now it's not to say that I can't do canceling wrong. Right. It's not to say that I can, you know, do some pylons and all that, all that other stuff. But I think canceling is is is, is compatible with with forgiveness. Um, and I think I think what people are concerned about is, hey, if all this canceling is happening, um, then we're not going to forgive people. Or we're not going to be merciful. So people suggest, hey, we need to replace canceling with a forgiveness culture. Mm-hmm. But I don't like that culture talk <laughs> because culture implies that we ought to forgive all the time, no matter what. And we ought to forgive because a whole bunch of other people is forgiven and forgiveness is the good thing to do. But I don't think forgiveness should be well in that in that particular in that particular way. But so you can cancel and forgive. And, it, and it's, it's all good. But I would argue that what you are saying um, in terms of assessing the damage, repairing the damage, doing some really hard soul searching is totally appropriate to dealing with forgiveness rather than the kind of forgive and forget culture that that I think is probably much too common. Yeah, because what a lot of people, a lot of people like to talk about when they talk about canceling is that they like to talk about, hey, you no longer support this particular person. Right. But what we know, particularly about our online practices of, 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 of canceling, that they, it's not just canceling per se that happens, right? Canceling is usually the, 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 the last part of the process. A lot of people call celebrities out, right? So they bring attention to the wrongdoing, right? They try to hold the wrongdoer accountable, right? And then if the, the wrongdoer doesn't, you know... <laughs> Um, do their part, then canceling, canceling happens. Um, and so I, I think a lot of people like to beat up on canceling as if it's not a moral practice. I think it is a moral practice. I think, you know, celebrities need to be called out. They're often protected by their wealth. And if they do something bad, they should be called out. They should be held accountable. Um, and in that way, that's one of the reasons why I don't want to get rid of canceling, um, because I understand that it's a way to, to, to keep celebrities and public figures held accountable to their actions. But I wonder whether, um, you, you know, what, what is the next step then just to write them off or is there something more that can be done? No, not to write, not to write them off. I mean, I mean, here's the, here's the interesting thing. I wish I had a great influence over like celebrities' lives and we had <laughs> a we deeper all, relationship. Yeah. But like you said, you know, you, you kind of doubted that we were in relationship with celebrities. Well, we are in transactional relationships. I don't think LeBron would be heartbroken if I decided no, to no longer support him. Many people did once he left Cleveland. That's perfectly fine. Um, but I think I think there's a there's a point where, and this is just kind of what happens in our relationships. You try to hold, you know, your coworkers to account. You try to keep them accountable. And if they don't want to be held accountable, then what more can you do? Maybe you need to say, hey, I'm not the one um, that can do this. Maybe someone um, needs to take over and, and hold them accountable, but I no longer want to be a part of this, this toxic relationship. I think that's, that's, perfectly, that's perfectly fine. Um, so just, because, just just because I decided not to no longer support a celebrity doesn't necessarily mean that other people are not going to support and continue to hold them accountable. And I think, I think that thinking that if I cancel, then what? Then if if we all if if fifty people cancel, then what? I think people are always will be there to continue to work, and I think putting pressure on us as if we ought to be kind of the superheroes that save celebrities' lives. I think hmm. that's not that's not 
that's not the reality. But you do make a distinction between these so-called transactional relationships of people that we do not know and people in our lives and, and whether we cancel, uh, whether and how and if we cancel them in our lives. So we are in actual relationships with people who are yes. in our interpersonal lives. Yes. And I think that requires a kind of different kind of responsibility. Right. So LeBron, I mean, I can retweet something about LeBron James and he may read my tweet and may change his ways, although I think LeBron James is perfect. Um, <laughs> but but that's quite different from from me having a relationship with my sister. Right. I don't want to completely give up on my sister because given the nature of our relationship, it requires something quite different. Right. So I do want to continue to hold her accountable. And even though she doesn't respond to me, I don't want to let her go so quickly. Right. I want to be a little bit more patient. And that re my relationship requires patience in ways that doesn't really require that when it comes to a particular celebrity. Right. But even after it's all said and done, if I decide that she's no longer going to change her ways, um, that I, I don't want anything to, to to do with her anymore. I don't want to call that canceling, right? right? Because canceling to me is just for transaction relationships. Let's just call it what it is. I have decided not to forgive her. Let's use that language. Mm -hmm. But I think to use a language of canceling in our personal relationships is to objectify our loved ones. And I, I don't I don't want us to, to, to do that. We're almost out of time here, but would um, true forgiveness, would that make us a better people, a better country? I think true repair or radical repair will make us will make us better. So forgiveness can't do it all. Um, it may have to do other things other than forgiveness. But what I think is important is that we always keep our eye out on repair in our world, whether that's with or without forgiveness. And do you think we're good at that? <laughs> yes, <'cause> <laughs> no, looking across the universe, right? I think I think we're 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 good at inventing stuff. Um, we're good at restoring roads after earthquakes. Um, and if we have that ingenuity within us, I think that's a reminder that we can also repair the messes that we make um, and repair our worlds. I think we, we, we have the resources. We just need to engage in the emotional work and the reparative work. And I think once we put our mind to it, I think we can get the repair uh, that our world desperately needs. But we got to we got to put our minds to it. In fact, you, and we're out of time here. You even say there is a kind of reparative instinct that humans have. Yep. Yep. We want to repair roads. Um, <laughs> I want to do some repairs to my house. <laughs> um, it's in us. And I, I think I think we need to focus on making sure that we use that reparative instinct, even when it comes to the things that are difficult for us or emotional for us or sensitive to us. Um, it's in us. And I say, let's get to work. Let's get to work. Indeed. Well, Maisha Cherry, thank you so much for joining us today on The Connection. Uh, you've given us a lot to think about and talk about. Those, so thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And she is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of California at Riverside. She directs the Emotion and Society Lab, and she's got a brand new book. It's called Failures of Forgiveness, What We Get Wrong and How to Do It Better. Well, thanks for joining us on The Connection. Every week we explore different aspects of what makes us human and unique. You can email us at theconnection at whyy.org and tell us what you want us to cover. You can check out our website, whyy.org slash theconnection and sign up for our newsletter. You can always download a podcast of the show wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram and find us on Facebook. Al Banks, the engineer for today's edition of The Connection. The show is produced by Debbie Builder and Paige Murray-Bessler. I'm Marty Moscow-Wayne. Thank you so much for joining us.